This is Arabella Friesen of John Sandow's Bookshop in London, and I'm delighted to have with me, via the wonder that is Zoom, the writer, traveller and journalist Horatio Clare. He will already be known to many of you through a clutch of marvellous books, the first of which was a memoir, Running to the Hills, published in 2006. I first came to Horatio's work through Orison for a Curlew, which is a sort of Carolian pursuit of a bird that was probably already extinct at the time of his researches, but the idea of which was not yet gone. A year or so later came something of his art, walking to Lübeck with J.S. Bach, wonderful, and which flew from John Sanders in the autumn of 2018, as did The Light and the Dark, a winter journal published the same year and equally powerful. His new book is called Heavy Light, a journey through madness, mania and healing and is published by Chatto and Windus on the 4th of March. It's courageous, intelligent, startling, with a characteristic ringing clarity of thought and expression. So, hello to you, Horatio. Welcome to the digital tentacle of John Sandoz. Would you like to begin <laughs> by giving us some brief outline of the book? and perhaps why you've called it Heavy Light. Thank you for an extraordinarily generous introduction. Um, uh, the brief outline is that uh, coming up three years ago now, so the end of 2018, I had a complete mental breakdown, um, which saw me sectioned in early 2019, detained under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act um, in a hospital in Wakefield, where I was for a couple of weeks um, before being released and returned to the community on a journey um, that at the time seemed extremely tenuous. Uh, the choice that was facing me seemed to be between a lifetime of madness and a lifetime of medication. Uh, fortunately, um, in beginning to research what had happened to me um, and the wider field of acute mental health treatment, I found that that binary is uh, as big a lie as all the binaries. And in fact, um, the world of healing and curing is much wider and brighter than you might expect. So the book starts in mania in the Alps. We were on a family skiing holiday and I try to describe what it is like um, to be in the grip of delusions while at the same time ever more tenuously functioning in the world. And it was very frightening and very exhilarating. Uh, and I tried to get both of those in there. The book takes you to a complete crash. Um, and although it is absolutely a book about the experience of madness, um, the thing I'm pleased with it uh, is that it's a sane book about madness. So you see what happens, um, how the services deal with you, and um, then what the inside of a mental hospital is like. Um, and then you follow the journey of treatment and coming out, but also in a retracing um, of the people who dealt with me. So the book was written for three real purposes. One was to bust the taboo around being sectioned. Another one was to look at the difference between having had a breakdown, which once upon a time was a fairly accepted thing to do, um, and being condemned by a life of diagnosis in psychiatry. Um, and another was to pay tribute to the roles of family, friends and professionals, and to have a look at how it is that they work and what strange, dangerous and difficult work they do. 
The book is divided really into two parts, the first of which is your description of your breakdown, um, which is told absolutely straight, unadorned, it's sort of weirdly thrilling in a way. Now, I remember at one point in your book, you say how fortunate you were in that your, your mania, if that's what I should call it, uh, was so optimistic. Yes, that's true. Uh, it was. Um, and I wouldn't want to drag the reader through uh, misery and pain. Um, that's not what I write books for. Um, but uh, the thing about this was, um, and there's a brilliant book by Jay Griffiths called Tristamania, which also studies and uh, recounts the same thing. Uh, the Edge of the Manic High um, can also be extraordinarily exciting, enlivening, rich, apparently deep, um, and awfully, chaotically, apparently meaningful. Well, exactly. So, filled yeah. with, so purposeful. And it, well, it was like living in a in a James in in, in, a, in a very strange thriller. Yes, it was. Which is also absolutely exhausting. Yes. Well, I was trying to save the world, you know, and I, I thought that, moreover, I thought that, that a world-saving scheme was afoot, and that the governments of the world have had contact from an alien civilization which had said, unless you change your ways, um, it's all over with you. It feels now like a bit of a foreshadowing of the pandemic. Um, but at the time, I thought, uh, oh, golly, um, I've been dragged into this because I'm a journalist and an observer, and there must be many, many thousands like me. I'm a cog in a great and important scheme, and I must give it everything. Uh, so I set about what seemed utterly to me to be my task with conviction and energy. Um, so it was a great pity on one <laughs> level that it wasn't true. Commitment, integrity, all the, all the curious sort of many virtues brought to bear on it too. Um, when you write about all of that, you know, your recall is absolutely extraordinary. And does that heightened uh, state of being of um, mania sort of uh, burn things on your retina in a way? I think that puts it very well. Yes, it really does. Um, I have a good memory anyway, uh, particularly for um, for people and, and things said. Um, so things that interest me and draw me are nature, experience, going out into the world and any kind of heightened experience in the way that you get when travel writing um, seems to lay itself down very fluently. So it, that, it was very easy um, to recall it. I didn't start taking notes. I must have made all kinds of chaotic jottings, but I didn't start taking notes properly until the mania drained out of me which was happened very quickly on about the second day in the mental hospital uh, after a very strong dose of antipsychotic, um, it just came swirling out. And a couple of days later, um, I was rigorously writing down my days as much as I could um, and my observations. Uh, and so from that moment on, it becomes, there is a journal to draw on. Um, and a lot of that is in the book. Um, and the because, earlier part? You know the um, yeah no not at the beginning it's it was very hard to look back at it I mean I looked at some of the 
emails I sent at the time and you realize quite how mad you were. Um, but no, I found it very easy um, to recall the whole thing. Um, and the nice thing, the rather wonderful thing about writing it down is that not only, I suppose, does it exercise it to some point it, it, in some way, but it also fixes it, which when you write about something wonderful, like a, a, an extraordinary childhood on a mountain, uh, is slightly obscuring because you can't perhaps see very much beyond the written record. Um, but in this kind of uh, very painful mad journey, it was good, actually. It is good to have it um, sort of trapped in amber um, so that it's there now. And, and that drains it of its power to come back and make you think, oh, how could you? How could you have done that? Um, although there's an element of that that will never go away. Yes, but um, perhaps uh, hopefully part of a process of, of, of healing, I mean, the sort of very obvious coming to terms and being open about it and transparent, uh, which is a sort of journey in itself. Yes, uh, it's, it's a strange balance you're trying to strike because you really don't want to... Um, to take to waste any of the reader's time is it Kurt Vonnegut who says use the time of a complete stranger in such that it will not be wasted and I'm, I'm, that's my great fear when writing is 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 to waste anyone's time but um, at the same time there was a hugely curative um, and healing uh, process at work in, in writing it down um, so I hope it served a double function. A point that you make repeatedly um is that it's a continuum. You don't have well, you don't have sane and insane. It's not a clear line. But it's as if at a certain point that's not how it's treated by the health services. And so there's a little passage here. The words with which a breakdown is treated are all medicalized illness, treatment, nurse, doctor, meds. But the mechanism of treatment belongs to retribution incarceration, surveillance, behaviour monitoring, parole. Yes, um, that bit comes pretty well straight from the diary when I was inside the hospital. And you can hear um, the anger um, because that is how it feels. And to have your liberty deprived, however so benevolently meant, um, it, it is a frightening thing and you do react against it until you realize, which I did at one point, that these, I mean, I was very clear these people were really trying to help and that it was nobody's fault that I was there apart from mine. Um, and only, you know, mine only to, to an extent, perhaps. Um, you're right. I, I, I mean, it, it is widely accepted, certainly in psychology and psychotherapy, that we all exist on a continuum between uh, perfectly well and completely bonkers and that many of us move along that line depending on all kinds of factors either environmental and current or buried in our past or social or traumatic or drug-induced any kind of thing can move us along it and indeed in the ordinary stable life of the ordinary individual who wolf talks doesn't she about the million myriad impressions uh, of, of the mind in every waking second of course we know what madness is. Um, I think insomnia is, is, is a very common form um, of, of a very normal everyday madness, um, every night madness. Um, 
And we have a whole vocabulary, don't we? Bonkers, Barney, Barney, um, Loopy, uh, which it plays also to an old fashioned view that um, there's an eccentricity that's in us and that it's not um, unfunny. In fact, quite a lot of the book has struck readers as, as very funny and I, I'm glad about it because so it should be. Um, the difficulty is obviously that when you're in trouble and the system's in trouble because it's overstretched and overpressured, um, and time poor, that it may not have very many resources with which to treat you. Um, and therefore you can end up in a situation where you're staring at a psychiatrist who's had only a few minutes to look over your notes, is really concerned that you don't go out and uh, hurt yourself or anybody else, and whose safest option is to prescribe medication. Um, doctors and service leads talk to me about numbers of people who they believe are taking medication to assuage their clinicians anxieties and de-prescribing is now a thing um so there is absolutely an investigation uh and something um of not exactly a polemic but there's certainly an investigation and a questioning um, of current practice i think i understood that while you were i think it was 23 days you spent in your hospital it may have been, yes. Um, yes, that sounds right. Some of them I was on voluntary section, but the voluntary yeah. is fairly notional, yes. <laughs> but I think, as far as I understood, uh, and again picked up in something you say later when you return that to, to visit and to, to teach, to give workshops, um, that actually there's no talking therapy when you're sectioned in that hospital. You're simply there, locked, with very little access to anything at all, and no talking therapy, but a regime of drugs which are prescribed in a, with the best will in the world in a rather hit and miss way, simply because that's how it's done at the moment. It seemed extraordinary that there was no in-depth daily, weekly session with a dedicated therapist. It is extraordinary. Um, and I, as far as I can establish, I was at the fortunate end of the spectrum in that hospital in that it was very well run uh, and we were cared for and it wasn't frightening or violent. Um, and there weren't, uh, they do have these incidents, but while I was there, there, and there certainly wasn't anything like illegal drugs on the ward, all of which you find um, in other hospitals, uh, according to people I've interviewed. And certainly there are bad and difficult inner city wards, um, which sound to me like versions of hell. Um, whether they are still that way, I don't know, but they certainly were in the experience of people I interviewed not long ago. Um, the access to talking therapies shocked me as well. People who were in for longer did get CBT sessions, which is a start, but what they all said was that they didn't want to, CBT worries about how you deal with tomorrow in a way. Uh, and what they wanted desperately was what I was able to afford when I left, which is a therapist to talk about yesterday, about how you got here. And the absence of that, this devastating, and, and the Lancet uh, and the NHS are very frank about this, shortage of uh, clinical psychotherapists um, is absolutely um, crippling, I think, to our uh, entire approach to mental health. If people can't talk about it, and we know talking works, um, then medicating um, is a really poor second, I think. And of course, 
medication can work too. I'm pro-medication, um, certainly in crisis, certainly if it works for people. Um, I'm against, very much against polypharmacy, which is the massive overprescription of drugs, which are prescribed uh, certainly um, at the critical end uh, by side effect, because after all, there is no chemical imbalance in the brain. That theory was debunked. Um, we can't tell what happens in a brain. Uh, a lot of the drugs that are prescribed, like lithium, we don't even know how they work. Uh, and psychiatrists were very frank with me and said, we prescribe by trial and error, by side effect. So obviously, I'm not condemning anybody because psychiatrists would certainly give the perfect pill if they had it. But yeah. the fact is, it doesn't exist. Um, so it is a really difficult um, snakes and ladders uh, world. Um, and I guess what works for you is best. But um, it is clear that we have over-medicated and that we need options. People need and deserve options um, so that there's so that they, you avoid being locked in chemical boxes. In the second part of your book, where you start going around meeting, seeking out psychiatrists and policymakers, um, you meet Dr. Peter McRae, who's absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that he says to you is that um, non-Western societies, where medication, where psychosis is not treated pharmaceutically to the same extent that it is here, um, they have far better rates of recovery. Yes, that's what he said, um, exactly. And you can imagine, can't you, that there's a concomitant to that, which would be that um, there must be people in those societies who are treated terribly. Um, my mum, who's a great explorer, has come across that. Um, however, the idea that uh, close-knit communities with good and open relationships, where communities are more supportive, where families are not fragmented in the ways that ours are, you can see that for a sufferer um, and for their family, that kind of network would be crucial. So the de-prescriptioning, the de-prescribing is um, an interesting route and relatively new and building up a bit of head of steam. And you also talk about a few other kinds of um, treatment. I think you benefited from a relatively new one called EMDR. Yeah, uh, so de-prescribing seems to be what a lot of people are talking about. Um, I have uh, been exchanging emails with the um, president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and he tends to take a very holistic approach. And I think psychiatry, in theory, absolutely would take this approach. They know, we all know that medication is a lifesaver in certain situations, but there are other ways. Um, and I mean, the, I, I quote a famous study by Martin Harrow, which showed that over 20 years, you're more likely to be in a better place if you don't take long-term medication, certainly not after year two, than if you do. Um, a lot of that, I think, and Harrow speculates, has to do with sort of the strength of people's narratives and the support that they get. What EMDR does, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is you sit opposite a therapist who, uh, in my case, waved her finger from side to side, got me to count down and count backwards. Uh, so really distracting the conscious brain. And at the same time, asked me to replace myself uh, back in memories that we had identified as holding uh, moments of trauma for me, um, entering it, as it were, on a subconscious level and thinking, trying not to think 
so much as feel. And the idea seemed to be not just to feel those things again, not to enter entirely into that feeling, but to see how it felt, um, to witness it. And then she would ask him, what did you get? And I would say, oh, I suddenly realized that uh, my father was thinking this way and I was thinking this way. And what I didn't say was this. And what I made of what he said was that. And it seemed to be, well, it was, certainly in my case, extraordinarily cathartic. Uh, it was like pulling up a cable. And you know when it, under the sort of shallow buried, and it just, the earth flies off it and you can trace the thing back to wherever it goes. Um, and so it was an amazing experience of tracing roots of, you know, a need to please, um, a willingness to lie in order to please, um, fairly dented self-worth, um, all these, I suspect, very normal things, um, which I had buried and internalised um, and which had driven behaviour, which compounded with my trigger cannabis, had regularly made me something of a manic nightmare. Um, and uprooting it was incredibly freeing. Um, and there are, you know, there have been extreme claims made for and against the MDR. So I can't give a, an overall perspective on it. I can only say that for me, it was, it was absolutely extraordinary. You know, it was one of the, the stranger journeys of a traveling life. And um, you talk also about a Finnish technique um, called open dialogue which seems and which is now I think having a huge trial here and is a sort of strikes one as a sort of more hesitant thoughtful kind of approach there's not apart from perhaps in crisis little prescription of drugs and also a sort of lack of proscription yeah exactly you put it very well open dialogue uh, seems to me and uh, by the figures um, looks nothing short of a paradigm shift um, so what happens is I have a breakdown I get delusions um, I'm officially psychotic somebody makes a call to an open dialogue practitioner uh, all you've got to do is get me there we sit down um, you uh, me having my so you're my friend my peer supporter there's somebody there who's been through it before there's the open dialogue practitioner and there's a clinician so a doctor or a psychiatrist and we talk between us about what we're going through uh, me with my delusions of aliens you with your anxiety about your friend who's in bits the open dialogue practitioner about what she's seen before and what she thinks might be happening here the psychiatrist about whether or not drugs can help in this case and you move together um, and the results uh, are astonishing so the idea began in Finland and it was uh, very much that delusions were a language that the speaker had lost um, a way of communicating what was actually wrong with their world and was, was speaking in a kind of delusion, in, in delusions, in order to give uh, an impression of a world, to reconstruct a world that they could no longer bear effectively. Um, and so by talking it out, um, these extraordinary people got astonishing results. Um, we're talking about 83% of the most severely afflicted people. So we're talking about schizophrenia and psychosis um, being back at work and medication free uh, over a period of time. Those rates are a world away from the United Kingdom's rate, which is anything down as low as 9%. 
uh, most of whom would be medicated. Uh, in open dialogue, it was sort of 35% of taking medication. So it really does work. Um, and families talk about it very movingly. Um, the, the practitioner I spoke to kept saying, the family said it was the first time we were listened to. And so what it is, I think, is an acceptance that these crises don't happen um, individually. It's not just about one person's brain, which does or does not, well, does not have a chemical imbalance, but which is afflicted by the whole wide circle of pressures. Um, it's about something that's happening in a way to a group of people, which is being channeled through one. Um, and so Open Dialogue, I think, seems to aims to treat the whole uh, system, as it were, your whole sort of unit. Um, and the results are spectacular. Uh, about a tenth as expensive, um, about a tenth of as many bed days uh, needed by people going through open dialogue compared to people who have the treatment as usual route. Um, I think it will change the world. Um, I, I think uh, humanity is clever enough to see when things work uh, and to adopt them. I don't know how long that will take, um, but it is probably one of a field of treatment options that will change the way we think about how you deal with the very distressed. It may be given a, uh, a sort of unwitting boost by the fact that it's also so much cheaper than existing models of care, thank God, because that gives it then a real chance of, um, if it is as successful and as extraordinary as it seems, of really transforming, um, perhaps even relatively quickly, um, what yes. is a very sort of troubled and difficult field, lacking resources, wonderful people working in it, but without enough time and with, well, you know, yes. the cuts, the terrible cuts. You also talk about, um, early on in your book, I wrote down Sue Stewart-Smith, and then I get to your part two of your book, and there she is. And... Um, I think the research that she did with her book was so absolutely fascinating about oh how 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 people respond to horticulture that extraordinary american was he a prison governor who no no I think it was an asylum wasn't it and he noticed that those inmates who were too poor to pay for their treatment themselves uh, and therefore had to work in the grounds in the gardens to pay for their care did far better than those who sort of simply languished and had no occupation and were not engaged in the natural world. Yeah, it's a wonderful part of her book, isn't it? Gardening is good for you and, and, and visibly, measurably good for you. Um, and of course it makes sense, doesn't it? Give somebody purpose, uh, give them perspective and consolation, all of which nature and gardening give for free. Um, and of course they're on a, a road to recovery. Um, the, the biggest moment for me in the whole thing was when the open dialogue practitioner I was talking to, I said, you know, how would you have dealt with me uh, if I was as mad as two bats and babbling away? And she said, well, we would normalize it. We would say, this is an entirely understandable reaction to what the pressures that you're experiencing. Um, yeah. And then she went on to say, it's about healing. And it was a light going on for me because I would have been battering my head against this fear that there was no cure uh, and that I therefore had to take pills for the rest of my life. And of course, there's no cure for being you or me, but there is clearly healing. Um, and so 
it made me think about things in, in a different way, a, a, a more open-ended way. And I try to be comfortable with uncertainty. I think that's uh, so antithetical to the way I've um, lived and, and grown up. The idea that, you know, you, you want to do a thing and you, you set a plan and you, you nail it down and you get it done uh, and you try and make your sort of make your horizons fairly fixed and, and head for them. But of course, life isn't like that. And it certainly isn't like that now. So perhaps we're all learning to be more comfortable with uncertainty, whether we would wish to or not. Yes, the interesting times that have been come our way. And the nature, uh, experience of nature, there's one passage in your, in the sort of, during your mania, when you're describing your mania, where you have gone for a walk, you've, you've gone out and you've followed sheep paths, animal paths through trees, woods, birches. You come to, a, I think, a precipice, but um, you're fine. You don't fall over the precipice and you come back, you meet somebody. But that, the writing, that's the one sort of really lyrical passage in that whole first part of the book is, is about walking through those woods and th along those paths and the sort of heart lift and exhilaration, a sort of an ecstatic experience of nature, which comes across in your other writing and clearly is something that many people share. I wonder whether in this sort of extraordinarily urbanised age, whether people have access to nature in themselves when they're so deprived of it, when they have not grown up with it, when it's not part of them, I wonder. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that's right. Um, it really is. I mean, you, you notice it even uh, living in, in London on, on a low wage, and, and God knows that's more than many. Um, that's the, the idea of taking a trip out to the country was actually uh, really expensive. It took a lot of time. Uh, and what do you do when you get there? Where do you go? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of London. And of course, I was lucky in London because you've got a strip of pure wilderness running straight through the middle of it in terms of the Thames. Um, and I used to try and make myself walk in a park every day just to feel grass under your feet on the way home to or from work. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's really very, very, very hard. Um, and the, the only bits that we get for free, you know, the sky um, uh, and the light and the air are all very mediated in a city by what they seem to sit on and blow around. Um, I do think it's terrifically hard. I do. Um, and there's a very good book by Isabel Hardman. Um, she had a, a breakdown and she wrote very movingly about how if you've got a, a friend who's in trouble, um, the best thing you can do for them is buy them a cheap pair of trainers. She said, you know, get out and exercise and walk. Um, and all that's clearly true. Yes, even even in an urban environment, because there are always things to see and different air to breathe. I guess if you fight, if you if you look at a city as, a, as another form of nature, then you're beginning to be in business. Uh, yes. When I worked in the old shop, I lived in the Chelsea Potter. Uh, it was my first proper job in London. I was a barman for seven months living in. And, uh, you know, the King's Road seemed to me, um, well, it was, a, it was a boulevard of, of light and air as much as anything else. It was a beautiful, uh, wonderful part of the world. Um, and those back streets running down to the river, how gorgeous. And indeed, humanity and the natural environment working together to make this lovely place. 
Horatia, you described earlier both your book and your experiences of a couple of years ago as one of the stranger journeys of a travelling life. And it's interesting to see how you see your experiences of, of mania and, and recuperation as part of your own personal continuum. Um, for all the difficulty and trouble that uh, you experienced and pain, um, the book is full of hope and optimism, full of joy. Good. I hope so. Thank you, Arabella. I mean, I uh, absolutely um, am an optimist um, uh, against all um, empirical rationality, uh, without question. Um, and that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons that I write, is that the world, even at its worst, seems full of hope. Um, and life itself seems to be partly made of hope. And if, uh, if I have an opportunity to celebrate it and to draw attention to it, uh, and indeed perhaps to live it, then um, that is the greatest privilege. Um, and it was lovely what you said about that ecstatic feeling that nature gives. Um, I, I entirely am with that. Um, the, ideally, it writes itself straight onto the page and all you do is take dictation, like Dylan Thomas in his boathouse, sitting yeah. at kind of gull height over the estuary, writing it down exactly uh, as it seemed, as it is. Um, and there is some of that in heavy light, I hope. Uh, so, yes. Well, thank you very, very much and good luck. We will sell many of it, I think. And, um, <laughs> and we look forward to seeing you again, talking again. Well, thank you so much for your wonderful support for all my work and, and the incredible kindness and generosity of your customers and readers. It, it really is marvellous and, and humbling. Thank you. Thank you.